to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today, returning to speak with me about the love commands and biblical love, Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Welcome, Tom. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I, I enjoyed our last conversation so much. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> I just love having you on. We've had such great conversations. And, yeah. And um, you have a really uh, cool new book that's coming up. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about it? Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's called Pluriform Love, and uh, it makes the argument that uh, love ought to be the center of how we understand God, uh, center of theology, uh, center of how we understand how we ought to live. And that might sound really boring and like really, oh, yeah, yeah, everybody thinks that. But as I point out in the book, love is often not the center of formal Christian theology. And and in those cases when it is, I think it's often misunderstood. So part of this book is kind of criticizing major thinkers in history and their views on love. And part of this book is proposing theories I think better align with Scripture as a whole and overcome some big questions that contemporary people have about what it means to love and how God loves. You know, I think that Christians in general, and this is a very general um, statement, but Christians in general kind of pay lip service to love more than they really want to think about what love is and how to act it out. I think we talk about, we think about that that uh, Johannine phrase, God is love, right? Um, and we think about, um, you know, love one another, love your neighbor. We hear these phrases in the Bible, all read, read these phrases in scripture all the time. And, and we think, yes, of course, um, you know, Jesus loved us, so we love each other, and that's so great. But it's not that simple. And the way that we see it play out in, in real life is, is often much, much more complicated than that, uh, as evidenced by our own lives, our own personal lives, and by theological texts dating, dating back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I think it's, um, it's a topic that you can't write too much about. So um, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say in the preface of this book, my wife teases me because so many of my books have that word love somewhere in the title or subtitle. <laughs> and she said, another book on love? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that... Um, uh, we're doing ourselves a service by continuing to talk about it. Really, I don't think it's something we should ever grow tired of. Um, our, our primary purpose, I think, in this world is to love one another. Um, what that means, though, again, is complicated. Right. And I think one of the big issues has been, one of the big issues has been people have started with God, said God is love, just like the scriptures say. But they've actually implicitly begin with a certain view of God's power or sovereignty. And they've wanted a God who's either in charge of everything or could be in charge. And that ends up um, cashing out in doctrines like predestination, uh, in the classical sense of that word, cashing out in views about eternal damnation and hell, Um, that just don't align with our intuitions about what love is. And therefore, quickly, a lot of formal theology, when I say formal, I mean, you know, like the heavy hitters, Calvin, Luther, Aquinas, Augustine, quickly, their theologies of love just don't sound like love at all. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when we decided to, um, to discuss the love command, This is uh, because there is a chapter in your book that relates to a very notable, uh, maybe one of the most uh, notable theological writers over Christian history. Um, This has to do specifically with how love in the writings of Augustine is is viewed as desire or is is cast as desire. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Augustine actually... 
you know, you can say his name a number of ways. And when I was uh, first learning theology as an undergrad, we debated on whether it was Augustine or Augustine. And someone <laughs> came up with a little rhyme that I've always thought was humorous. You say, you can say Augustine or you can say Augustine, but either way you say it, his theology's disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> So if I slip back and forth between those two names, it's because both are are used in in um, everyday conversations in the academy. So Augustine is probably the most influential theologian whose writings aren't in the Bible, and I make the argument in this book that the philosophical milieu of his day, what we usually call Neoplatonic or Platonic philosophy inclined him to think about love as desire, as uh, wanting wanting to obtain the highest value. And that, that way of thinking about love echoes even through today, not even in Christian theology. You know, we'll say, I, I love a good pizza or I love a good cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of a desiring kind of love. And, and I've got nothing against desire. Let me quickly say that. But I don't think the majority of the scriptures portray love essentially as desire. I think love means something else in most of the Bible, including the passage we're going to focus on today. Do you, um, do you see Augustine as, um, as having sort of a preoccupation with desire as, as, an, as a concept? It seems like this is a thread that carries through a lot of his work. And I'll, I'll admit I haven't read a lot of it, but I've been through um, bits of confessions. And I, I was actually yeah. just thumbing back through it because I, uh, I thought, okay, um, it, it does this square with what you're saying in your book? Does this square with, um, with what I experienced? And, uh, and of course, um, I found a passage that I thought, well, there we are. There we have it. <laughs> so this is in uh, the Confessions of Saint Augustine. It's from it's from the chapter titled "The Goodness of All Creation," and there's a section in it called uh, "I Am Propelled by My Love." Uh, and he says, "Love lifts us up towards that place, and Thy good spirits lifts our lowliness from the gates of death. Our peace rests in the goodness of will." The body tends towards its own place by its own gravity. A weight does not tend downward only, but moves to its own place. Uh, he, he goes on, he says, My weight is my love. By it I am carried wherever I am carried. By thy gift we are enkindled and are carried upward. So there's this idea oh. that I'm reading from his concept of love that, uh, that it's a striving. Um, right. And that, that, fits, that, that fits with this notion of desire. But yes. it doesn't really make sense if we're considering love in the biblical way. So correct me if I'm wrong, there are uh, four different Greek words that are used for love in the Bible. Actually, there's only two, Okay. but there are four major Greek words that, that scholars often refer to. Oh, Agape wow. and phileia are in the New Testament, and the other two are eros and storge. Uh, those aren't in the New Testament, but a lot oftentimes, like for instance, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, those are the four that he focuses on. Mm. That must have been where I, I, um, I, I understood that, that four, those four words, and I've seen yeah. it cast in these different ways. And, and of course, love is, so, um, love is so central to the message of Jesus yeah. that we have to parse uh, how it fits into our lives in the many different ways that, that we do love each other. And, and there is, I think, room for your interpretation of love in each one of those sort of different sectors uh, yeah. of love. I call those forms of love. So my strategy is to say, let's have a a, a general definition, an overarching, broad uh, understanding of what love is, and then let's talk about particular expressions or forms of love. And taking that strategy, then my definition of love is to love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others to promote overall well-being. So to say it more simply, love aims to do good in some Mm. way. 
And then the particular forms of love might be agape, eros, phileia, compassion, you know, uh, self-love, neighbor love, enemy love, all these kinds of different varieties of, of forms. But um, I think a lot of the confusion comes because people don't have an overarching definition for love, and they know these different types of love, and they get all confused about, okay, what exactly is love? Uh, they don't have a, a conceptual scheme to work with. Hmm. And and when we read something like uh, this great uh, commandment from Jesus, the love command, uh, we are... Um, I don't know. It's, it seems like a very simple message, mm. but it's so much more complicated in practice. So why don't, why don't we just read, Excellent. I'll read uh, Luke 10 and I'll start at 25 and I'll just go through uh, 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So yeah. the love must be, the love must be genuine. The love must be all encompassing. But what is it? Yeah. Uh, in your casting of love, in, in your the, the thesis essentially that you're arguing in your book is that love is to act in a conscious way for the well-being of another. Um, so, how what does that mean for us to love God in that way? Um, yeah. Now, Augustine is adamant uh, in in Confessions and in, and elsewhere that God is unchanging. So, uh, obviously, I would see him say. In my mind, I'm seeing him say, well, what, what's, you can't do good to God. God is good. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how could we do, how could we act in the well-being of God? Yeah. Yeah. What, what Augustine does here is he really concentrates on that word all in the first command. And he says, okay, this is the way it works in his mind. Um, love desires what's most valuable. And of course, God, by definition, is the most valuable. So the first the first uh, love command is telling us to give everything we have. Our whole longing and desire ought to be toward God, who is the most valuable. And then when he gets to that second command, your neighbor is yourself, he's kind of got a problem because if you're loving your neighbor or loving yourself— well, then all of your love isn't going to God. So his proposed solution is to say, well, if you rightly love your neighbor and rightly love yourself, you're actually loving God in your neighbor and in yourself. Or to put it in his uh, terms, you don't love them for their own sakes. You love them for God's sakes. So his way of thinking about love as desire ends up being kind of a form of kind of mixing what I usually think of as worship or desire uh, to say the both commands ultimately mean the same thing if understood correctly. And that's where I have profound differences of opinion. I think it's odd to, um, odd to, to try to twist uh, his, I mean, essentially what you're saying is right. I, I mean, I agree as far as what love is, is, is at its very core acting in the interests of, of that which you love or those who you love. Um, so to, to then try to say you don't actually love anyone to love them, you love them because you love God is such an odd notion. And, and yeah. his explanation of it was very unsatisfying to me. Um, so it's, it's, I think, important to consider what is being said in this passage in Luke and then um, reflect it back on uh, what we see uh, written in Matthew in the very, very, very similar vein. Um, yeah. And I had it bookmarked, and now I can't find it. Well, I think Matthew's version ends saying something like, 
on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. So Matthew, because of his strong connection with Judaism and him making this link between what who Jesus is as kind of the, the new Moses, he's constantly referencing uh, Jewish laws. And he's saying, you know, these two commands, which both of them are found in the Old Testament or what Christians call the Old Testament, mm-hmm. both of them are there. He's saying on these two, everything else hang or rest or um we should understand all the law and the prophets based on these two. Um, and, and I think that reiterates how central to understanding God, um, understanding love is. If, if, if we can understand everything in the law and, and from the prophets through this one uh, lens, then uh, it's essential that we understand what mm. love is and what it means. And it's, it's a minor detail, but it's interesting to note that in Luke's uh, telling of this story, that uh, the lawyer is the one that repeats the, the law back or the command back to Jesus, whereas in Matthew, Jesus is actually uttering it. Mm, uh, I'll just read this point. quickly in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, And he said to him, and then we get a big block of red text here. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So I'm not sure what um, what of the difference uh, between Jesus uttering this and someone uttering this to Jesus uh, I'm supposed to to make of, and, and I, lately I've been fascinated by these, these little gaps or these little, um, these little blocks that kind of plug together in the way that the gospels are told and retold. Uh, these details that seem to be incongruent, but uh, in some way still line up and, and tell the same story and, and relay the same message. Uh, it usually just um, tends to complicate things for us even more than they already <laughs> yeah, are. Mark, Mark's got a little bit different variation too. I mean, the heart of it is the same, but he's got a little bit different conclusion. Um, I, I really like the the Luke version for a number of reasons, but, you know, it's prefaced by this lawyer asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I read eternal life here as something like abundant life or the good life or flourishing. I think of eternal life as fundamentally a quality of life, not so much a quantity of life. I don't Mm. think he's saying, teacher, what should I need to do so I can live forever and ever and ever? No, I think he's saying, teacher, what do I need to do to live the good life? (laughs) And Jesus uh, um, says, you know, what's what's written in the law? How do you understand it? And this person gives us these two commandments. And then Jesus responds, yep, and do this and you will live. And here I think that word live is an emphasis upon this quality of existence. I don't think Jesus is saying, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to die tomorrow or whatever. You know, it's not like a physical kind. It's some sort of a a quality of existence or what I call well-being in my definition. And then Jesus launches in to answer the question from the lawyer about eternal life. And he says, you know, he gives the Good Samaritan story, which involves helping someone, uh, promoting their well-being, in this case, someone who's been beaten. So as I see it, these two commands fundamentally tell us to promote well-being, uh, our neighbor's well-being, our own well-being, and the big kicker is I think we can promote God's well-being. And that's uh, interpretation of this passage is not very common, but I think it's it aligns well with the, all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, and, um, and the way love is being used in the passage. Could you elaborate a little bit, circling back to, to sort of what I mentioned earlier, what yeah. does it mean to, um, to act in the interest of God's well-being? Yeah. Well, you know, countless times in Scripture, um, God responds to what the people do, and that response is either one of, you know, happiness, joy, pride, or one of anger, despair, sorrow. Um, It's clear, well, it's, it's, 
repeatedly in the scriptures, God is affected by what we do and can be affected for good or bad. So the idea that I'm proposing is that we should think about God as a universal spirit who is an experiencing being or spirit, um, whose experience can be changed by the way we act. And that's reflected in these kinds of responses God is said to have to our obedience or disobedience, our love or our sin. Um, So to enhance God's well-being then is to act in ways that are good, that are excellent, that (laughs) <laughs> you know, turn God on, you might say. Uh, make it so the case that God is happy in a deep sense of happiness. That's what I mean by enhancing God's well-being. That's really interesting. I don't think a lot of us exist in our daily lives and, and in our even in our faith and in our practice and our worship. Um, don't uh, don't exist in a way and don't act in a way that. Um, that portrays the idea that we can affect God. Yeah, I uh, agree. That, yeah. that it's even though we may love God in whatever way that we are able, and even though we may worship God and pray to God um, and, and extend what would appear to be love, I don't think most of us uh, have that kind of concept in mind that we have the capacity to affect God. Yeah. Uh, especially God, specifically God's well-being. Right. Um, the notion itself is challenging because we imagine a creator, we imagine um, an eternal uh, being that has laid our, you know, laid out the world that has um, that has put together this incredible uh, this incredible planet that we live in, this incredible universe that we're a part of, and and our little actions and our little prayers and our our little sins can all have an effect on on how God is. For me, that is totally life giving. Mm. I mean, that is totally like I get jacked. What I do affects the God of the universe. I, this came to me many a couple of decades ago maybe even longer than that, maybe three decades ago, I remember being in a church service. And I come from a low church tradition. We like to rock and roll when we go to church. So, you know, it was a lot of drums and music, and we were singing and belting and raising hands and all that sort of stuff. And I was thinking as we were going through these worship songs and saying all this stuff about God's glory and power and love and majesty and how amazing God was, I said to myself, what are we really doing here? I mean, sure, when the emotions are really positive, it's a good thrill for me. But is it really just either pumping up our emotions to go out and, and you know say we had a good time? Is it more theologically oriented? We're reminding ourselves of the divine attributes and doing it in song form. Is that what worship's all about? Um, or... Is it the case that God's a relational God who is an experiencing being, who is affected by everything we do, good and bad? And when we do good, when we praise God, God actually gets a kick out of it. And I tell you what, I'm far more motivated to worship wholeheartedly if I think God's thrilled by what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That motivates me in ways that um, that aren't possible if I thought God was not affected by what I do. Uh, I think that um, coming from a low low church, in quotation marks, I, I, that phrase sometimes makes me think like, uh, there's this hierarchy of, I think we yeah. might have even discussed that on one of my prior conversations. <laughs> but coming from a low church uh, tradition, I think actually makes this, this sort of notion um, it seems like it might make this sort of, of notion of being able to affect God's well-being a little easier. Yeah. Um, the stoicism of Catholic tradition can sometimes uh, make it difficult to imagine that uh, we uh, penitent sinners are not simply groveling at the feet of God, but rather um, in relationship with God. 
and, and it, it kind of makes me want to get up and, and hoot and holler and, and whoop and, you know, play a guitar solo or something. I mean, yeah. I really, whatever we can do to glorify God is, is something that's a worthwhile venture. Now, of course, what we do and, and how or whether or not it does glorify God is another conversation. I mean, I think sure. it's, it can be really difficult sometimes to say, well, that's, that doesn't please God to something that someone else is doing. And, and then even in our own worship, we rarely look back at ourselves and say, does this actually please God? How I, how I praise him, does this yeah. actually, does this actually please God? And, and that's, I mean, it's almost unanswerable in the way that we'll never get a, a, a complete concrete response from God, uh, sure. or very few of us will. I think there's lots of biblical passages, though, that say things about God looks at the heart. So um, I, I think this is important because, you know, I'm a theologian. I, I do this for a living. So I'm really into the nuance and the weeds on a lot of things. And I go to church and I hear people things say things theologically that I think, oh, come on. Surely you don't believe that. That can't be true. And I'm sure God hears me talk and says, come on, Tom. You know. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think God knows our hearts. And I try to give that, uh, I try to interpret other people in a church setting who say things theologically, I think are way off base. If they do it with a sincere heart, I, that makes a difference to me. I'm not saying, you know, I endorse everything everyone says with a sincere heart, but um, I do think that matters. And that should be our focus when we talk about what it is that um, thrills God. If God knows our hearts in the right place, mm-hmm. it goes a long way. And uh, to act in earnest, you're right, is not always to um, to to be in the right. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> a lot but, of bad things have been done by yeah, people with good motives, right? <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but I, I think that it um, it reiterates the importance of this with all your heart, with all your mind. Yeah. Um, if you are to love God, then do not do it half-heartedly. Do not do it in a lukewarm way. And uh, and then perhaps you will be acting on in the in the well being in the interest of God's well being. Yeah, yeah. There's one a, of the um, things. Oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say there's there's a sort of a garden variety uh, uh, devotional book that I, I picked up in actually in a free pile uh, several months ago. It's called Awakening Your Soul to the Presence of God. Uh, hmm. By Killian J. Healy, who I'm sure would be upset with me calling it garden variety, but all the same, it's <laughs> it's the, there's not a lot of groundbreaking material here, but there was a passage that kind of struck me um, as I was sort of looking over material to discuss, is you know, in the vein of what we're talking about here, and uh, this is a, a chapter called uh, "The Loving Recollection of God's Presence," and and the author is encouraging people to as much as possible like like ancient church fathers did, to, um, to be cognizant of God's presence as much as possible. Um, not to, surely as human beings, we can't focus on one thing all the time, but to, um, to meditate on the presence of God and God's love will then grow your love for God and bring God closer to your heart. There's a little passage I just wanted to read because it presents God in a very interesting way. Uh, It says, of course, it's not possible for even the most perfect person to be conscious of God's presence for 24 hours a day, but it is quite possible to think of God and be actively conscious of him frequently throughout the day, just as a loving mother, although busy with housework, can be continually preoccupied in mind and heart with her sick child. And um, obviously, there's a lot of issues with (laughs) casting this metaphor of God as a sick child, but it does present God as... Uh, in this metaphor, as um, as as in need of care, uh, yeah. just like any entity in the universe, I find I find yeah. it fascinating. Uh, that's that's good. I like that. And one of the 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 points, one of my claims in this section of the book, where I'm talking about Augustine and why I think love really should be understood as promoting well-being, well-being of our neighbor, ourselves, God, all creation. Uh, one of the one of the things I point out is that if God is, as I suggest God is, God is an omnipresent spirit who is relational, whose well-being can be enhanced when we do good. When we do good to our neighbor, to ourselves, or all creation, and if God's omnipresent, 
our doing good to our neighbor is also going to be doing good to God. It's going to enhance God's well-being. When we love ourselves properly, we're going to be affecting God's well-being. So we don't have the either or that Augustine has to wrestle with. If he says, well, we've got to give it all to God. We've got to have all our desires to God. And then that second one comes along, love your neighbors yourself. He says, well, really, that's actually God. In my view, <laughs> you can love God, neighbor, self, all creation. And every time you love, because God's omnipresent and always affected, you're doing good to others indirectly does good to God. Makes I think it makes a lot more sense of this uh, great love commands. That's really interesting. I think that it's um, it can be so in loving other people. We it, it is essentially not um, loving other people, but not actually loving them. Just loving God through other people. It is. Um, glorifying God and and pleasing God through our love uh, for others. Yes, that's um, right. So, God is the creator. Uh, God um, tends to us in, in whatever ways that God can, and, and God creates us and, and sets us on this path of life. So, anything that we do to love one of God's creation— uh, one of God's, you know, someone, you know, another part of God's creation is then something that is pleasing to God. We don't need to yes. love someone because it feels like that's what we have to do in order to love God. Uh, through our love for others is uh, something that's pleasing to God. Yeah, that's that's nicely put. This reminds me, brings back a memory I haven't thought about in a long time. I remember coming out of college and my first job was a youth pastor in Walla Walla, Washington. And I was wrestling with this, where should my love be, my priorities? And, you know, I was taught by various people that I ought to have a list of all the things that are important in my life. And God ought to be at the top of that list. And then everything ought to sort of filter down in particular order. You know, mm -hmm. my wife ought not to be where God is. I don't worship my wife, but my wife is more important than my dog. And my dog's <laughs> more important than this rock or whatever. So we had this whole kind of hierarchy. And this always caused me real concern because like I was saying, okay, now, if my wife is second to God or, you know, whatever, then how do I know when's the appropriate time to go with the second in line rather than the first in line? Mm -hmm. Like it was always a competing interest here. It was a competition of loves and, and it wasn't clear to me how this worked. But if it's the case that when I love my wife and I love her for her own sake— her well-being is benefited and God's well-being is benefited too. I don't have to have God as one item, even if it's the top item on my list of priorities. God instead is everywhere. Mm -hmm. God is affected by all my appropriate loves for everything, including my dog, including amoeba, including even how I treat the, the planet. And that way of thinking just makes so much more sense to me. Instead of God being one object among others, God's well-being is in, enhanced whenever I enhance the well-being of creatures. And Augustine seems obsessed with this notion of, of ordering desires. This is, I think, Definitely. a phrase that you use. And um, earlier in the chapter, uh, prior to the discussion of the love command, is uh, is a discussion of another theologian's um, ref sort of um, interpretation of Augustine's love uh, love definitions, or for lack of a better word. It was Nigren, is that right? Yeah, Anders Nigren, yeah. So there is uh, an idea that I kept tripping over, and I had to read the, the paragraph a couple of times to really get through this notion of, um, this is a theologian who believes that you can love well and love wrong, uh, or, or love the right things and then love the wrong things, uh, implying that it's possible to love to do, to do evil. How, how is it really love if, if it's a, a, an urge to do evil? Well, Augustine would say so. He says you can love with a good love or an evil love, because love, again, for him is desire. So your desires can be good or bad. Um, 
again, I think that's part of the reason why we should reject his definition of love. <laughs> um, and Nigren wants to criticize him on that, and I join Nigren in criticizing him, but I got lots of criticisms for Nigren as well, um, because Nigren is basically a version of uh, the kind of predestinarian Calvinist view of God that I find so um, damaging in so many ways. Mm. And so... Um, so Nigren's got his own issues that I, I criticize pretty harshly, but at least Nigren is not defining love as desire. Hmm. Um, it, it just, it struck me as so odd that, um, that anyone would try to build a coherent argument around uh, the notion of uh, love being able to be capable of evil, that, um, <laughs> yeah. th- that it would be, in my mind, the first thought that I had was, well, that's not love then, is it? Um, it sounds you and to I me, think alike. You and I think alike. Yeah. <laughs> if it's if if it's love that um, that drives you to commit uh, sin, then that's just evil. That's not <laughs> that's not actually love at all. Yep. And I think we agree on this one hundred percent. And I think we have more than ninety percent of the Bible in our favor. Mm. There are some passages in which it sounds, you know. Um, Jesus says at one point, you shouldn't love the world. Well, that sounds kind of like love is a bad thing there. It sounds kind of like you're worshiping or making it a priority. So there are a a few passages that support the love is desire motif, but more than 90% support the intuitions you and I have that love is always about, in some sense, doing good, promoting flourishing uh, emphasizing abundant life, blessedness, shalom, eudaimonia, all the kind of good words that we, that people in scripture and philosophers use uh, when they talk about something positive. Now, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head or not, but what form, uh, what Greek word for love is used when Jesus says, do not love the world? Agape. Agape. Yeah, that's why agape doesn't have one particular meaning in the Bible. Uh, that's what Anders Nygren wants to say. Well, agape, the Bible means this by agape. And then he actually looks at all the times that agape is used, and he has to admit that they don't all mean what he thinks it means. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, another good example is um, Paul uh, criticizes someone named Demas for loving the world, and agape is used there. But of course, agape is also the word that's used when Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that word agape doesn't have just one meaning in Greek, and uh, that's been part of the confusion over the centuries. Hmm. Yeah, and Paul re- relays that um, that notion of um, not loving the flesh, not loving the world, um, yeah. not getting um, enveloped in you know these earthly things, which I think is a separate theological discussion, could be an entire other uh, conversation that we could have, I think. Um, But it is interesting to see uh, us being encouraged not to love God's creation in, in in a passage like that to say, do not love the world. I understand uh, of course, that Jesus doesn't just don't doesn't mean like okay, go start a forest fire or uh, <laughs> you know something something malicious like that. Do not love the world, hate the world. It's it's more like don't get preoccupied necessarily with the things of this world because there is an eternity and there is an eternal um, you know there is an eternal God and and our souls are eternal and in that way. You know, we we should just um, not just focus on those things that um, are are part of our day to day life um, and our immediate surroundings, but think in a more eternal way. Think more yeah. like Jesus in that way. Yeah, I mean, this way of thinking that Augustine is introducing has been criticized rightly by some of the most important atheists in history. Mm-hmm. They've said, "Look, you Christians." You're only concerned about God and the heavenly realms because you don't really love your neighbor or the world for its own sake. 
it's all about God. And so therefore, Karl Marx would say, you know, uh, you're too heavenly minded for any earthly good. You, you're not good citizens of the world because you don't give a rip about the world. And mm-hmm. Nietzsche would talk about the same. And today in our culture, you know, people will say, you know, why don't Christians care about creation? Well, because a certain amount of Christians don't think creation really matters. It's just going to burn and our real love <laughs> ought to be for God. And um, I'm suggesting there's much stronger biblical reasons to think that we can really love our neighbors, ourselves, and all creation for their own sakes. And God wants that, and God benefits from that. Um, And there's no competition between loves in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the left behind phenomenon did a lot of damage to to the Christian message, too, um, to even uh, you know generations of, of uh, people who then turned their notion of uh, you know the end of the world as us literally leaving this creation, uh, which may be the case, it may not be the case, uh, and and either way, this is this world is God's creation, right. and so even if you feel like you're going to be um, you know evaporated out of thin air when the time comes. Uh, it doesn't mean that you should forsake the world that you're living in. Yeah, and think about this in like really practical terms. When I was younger, I remember thinking to myself, um, why do people spend any time whatsoever with their pets? Because I thought pets don't have souls. Pets don't (laughs) really matter to God. Uh, and the only thing that really matters is people and getting their souls into heaven. So I was like a hardcore evangelist when I was younger. Mm. Um, if, however, you think that God's well-being can be enhanced when you're kind to your animals, then all of a sudden kindness to other animals makes a real difference. It's not mm-hmm. just something you do out of duty because someone says you ought to. You're actually affecting the God of the universe when you treat your cat well. <laughs> and I think that's powerful. Now, I can imagine some people listening to this episode and thinking to themselves, man, this Ord guy, he's got this really weird idea that God's well-being is enhanced. And does this mean that when I've sinned that God, like, I can really put God on a bummer day and, and uh, also that... I know people who've had temper tantrums, whose emotions go bad. And does this mean that this is why, you know, God's going to kick your butt if you step out of line and God's going to break bad instead of being perfectly loving? Mm -hmm. This was actually the worry of many in the early church because the Greek gods were those kind of capricious, arbitrary beings who would get mad at each other and hurt humans in, in, you know, in their conflict. Their emotions would get the best of them. And people like Augustine didn't want that kind of capricious, uh, arbitrary God. And so they wanted a God who was not going to be affected by anything we do and would be totally emotionless. Um, that way we could trust this God. Mm-hmm. And what I propose in the book, and I'm not the first to propose this, but it's a way of thinking about uh, distinguishing between God's nature or essence as unchanging, immutable, impassable, and God's experience as changing, being affected by, uh, being God having feelings. So we can say God's nature is steadfastly loving. Nothing we can do can ever change the fact that God's going to love everyone all the time, always act for good. That's, you know, we can count on that. Mm. However, because God's an experiential being, God's experience can be enhanced and can be affected by what we do good or bad. I think that particular view makes so much sense of scriptures, some of which do talk about God being affected and others sound like God is unchanging. We can just say, yeah, those ones that say that God change, never changes, that, those are talking about God's nature or essence. And those, all those ones that talk about God being affected, that's talking about God's experience. I think that it's easy for people to hear an idea like God is affected by our actions or God's well-being is affected by our love and think, um, 
think to uh, reflect humanity onto God. And that, I think, is where the mistake is made when people uh, hear ideas like this, uh, they do hearken back to the Greek gods. They mm-hmm. think, oh, then what you're just saying that God is uh, a mischievous little, uh, you know, angry, angry little guy in the sky that's contending with eight other, you know, that, that's contending with eight other gods that, um, yeah. you know, that there's, there's some sort of battle going on. And, and it's like, um, well, no, because, well, at least to me, there's there's a really easy way around projecting humanity and the insecurities of humanity onto God. Mm-hmm. Saying that God is affected by love um, is not to say that God has our ego, that God has our selfishness, mm. that God has um, our insecurities, uh, and, and any other number of, of toxic personal traits that we carry as human beings all the time, ones that we struggle with every single day. It is to say that God has the capacity to feel, but mm-hmm. it doesn't. It doesn't mean that God is going to fall into the same pits, the same emotional pits, right. and the same anger that we fall into as human beings all the time. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Beautifully put. You know what I see, and maybe you've noticed this too, since you and I have a similar background. I, I suspect you've seen it. Um, people like me who grew up in a fairly traditional, conservative, evangelical background. They uh, go to church and hear people talk, and it's easy to get the impression that God is like your little buddy. You know, God (laughs) is going to make sure, uh, you know, you get a good lottery ticket. God uh, rescued you from bad traffic. God is, you know, kind of catering to you, and um, God sometimes gets pissed if you step out of line, and God might whack you across the side of the head. you kind of get painted, God's painted as like a bigger version of a, a person, a human person. And that human person has, and, and God has all the the, the, the foibles <laughs> of humanity. <laughs> and when you go through that long enough and you start to see the real problem with that, what a lot of people will do is they'll shift. They'll say, oh, that's anthropomorphism. That's portraying God in our image. God isn't like that. God's not my little buddy. And they'll go way over to this other side that is well represented by Augustine and many in the classic tradition, in which God isn't anything like us, has no emotions, has no feelings, can't act, doesn't love in any way like we love, isn't related, and is kind of like the Force in Star Wars. You know, Mm -hmm. it's there, but you don't do anything to it. It's kind of like you have to have it for things to work, but that's about it. It's like these moral laws of the universe, but not a real person. Mm -hmm. So they swing way over to the other side. And what I'm suggesting is there is a middle ground that's both biblically and philosophically respectable that says God is a real relational being, but doesn't isn't affected by mood swings and isn't just <laughs> a big, bigger version of us, isn't your little buddy. Um, and that, I think, makes best sense biblically and conceptually, philosophically. Yeah, it's a real... Um... It's a real daunting notion to think of God getting grumpy, uh, and it's a good it's a good thing that God doesn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, God help us if if, if God does. Uh, well, and here you know here we uh, at least I want to admit I suspect you will too. I want to admit that the Bible gives us a mixed message. Look, there are passages in the Bible in which God seems to get pretty grumpy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, oh, <yeah>. um, <laughs> um, and, you know, I have some friends who think they can reconcile the God of some passages who wants genocide with God being loving. And they'll say things like, well, from God's perspective, killing all the people, well, that's really a loving thing. And and I just want to say, no, no. It's better just to say sometimes the biblical writers get God wrong Mm -hmm. than to try to somehow say the commandment to kill all the people is a loving thing. (laughs) Um, I wish that that wasn't such a controversial Oh, it's hugely uh, controversial. I mean, it's it's something that so many people take such issue with. Um, Yeah. And... 
And I just, no matter which direction I lean at any point of the year or the month or the week or the day, theologically, no matter where I land in in what I used to think was a straight line kind of spectrum of of, uh, Christianity, but now I'm learning is much more like a waveform or even like a a globe where (laughs) we're all in different points on this globe. Uh, I just cannot, um, I cannot come to grips with this notion that there is every single translated and tra- and retranslated and untranslated and retranslated word in the Bible has suddenly um, become that every single word is perfect and that yeah. no- nothing could have been affected by by um, by the minds of men, the minds of the men right. who wrote the very book. Yep, I totally agree. Hmm. Now I, I don't. You know, I'm not going to be like Benjamin Franklin and go through the Bible and cut out all the parts that I don't like and that I don't think, you know, fit with the image I see in Jesus. But um, I also am not going to pretend like it's all smooth and a systematic theology and all works out really nicely because that's just not the Bible I read. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's some strategies, and I talk about this in this Pluriform Love book, some strategies that we can use to make the claim that the overall drift and the general thrust of Scripture paints a God who is perfectly loving, who isn't in the business of killing babies. And because of those overall drift, because of the revelation we find in Jesus, because of the deep moral intuitions we have, we can criticize some passages in light of the majority of passages of Scripture. And in doing that, we're not chucking out the Bible. We retain the Bible, but we're able to critique portions of it. And I think having the example of Jesus is essential in us understanding mm. where love, um, where God's love takes us in, uh, in our human lives. That um, Jesus, while he didn't live a very long life, um, had uh, a life that was informed and and constantly driven by love. And using mm-hmm. your definition of love, we see how love was acted out by Jesus in in any number of ways. Between welcoming those who are unwelcome in their communities, between uh, healing the the sick and and raising the dead, and mm-hmm. um, and inspiring. Uh, folks to get closer to the Creator. Um, that is how God. Um, that's not just how God wants us to love in our lives, but that's how God loves. Yeah, and, that's and beautiful. That's God loves in the way that it it improves the um, the well being of others and encourages others, uh, humans, to love each other. I agree totally. As you were talking, I was thinking you, you're listing every – these expressions of love you're listing, I'm totally buying into. And, I, and I'm thinking of illustrations, you know, healing the sick and helping. Um, I've been especially um, taken lately by the love of Jesus that is not necessarily um, – kind of what you think of in terms of like self-sacrifice or helping the beaten man on the side of the road, but the love that stands up to systems of injustice. Hmm. Like, like for instance, the story of the woman caught in adultery. You know, Jesus loves not only by protecting her, but by challenging those who are getting ready to stone her to say, look, you know, you've got issues yourself and this system of killing people caught in adultery, that doesn't work based on uh, all of our sins. Yeah. Um, so again, I guess maybe as another way of saying love is pluriform, which is the, the name of the book, uh, <laughs> that is, you know, love sometimes means loving our our enemies, strangers. Sometimes it means caring deeply for ourselves and caring for our own well-being. Sometimes it's family members. Sometimes it's animals. Sometimes it's fighting the powers. Sometimes it's liberating the oppressed. Love takes so many different forms. And I think the Bible celebrates that in ways that a lot of Christians haven't uh, realized and been aware of. Absolutely. And, you know, important to note in in the, the... the anecdote that you just mentioned with Jesus and the woman who's caught uh, committing adultery and, and any other uh, case where Jesus is um, amidst sinners, that we see that God loves 
sinners. God mm-hmm. doesn't sin with sinners. God doesn't condone the sin, but uh, th- God will continue to love these people that have either cast themselves out of uh, their society through their actions or have been cast out due to their actions, their sicknesses, or, or whatever that may be. And that love continues to act in the interest of even the sinner's well-being, uh, yeah. not just those that are in God's good graces, but because God loves and loves and loves and loves, that love extends to those who may not even be expressing love themselves. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've said love a lot in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the one of the themes in this book that um, that now I'm focusing on, based on what you said, is this notion that God loves us all, mm. and if love is aimed at well-being, this means that God, you know, cares about our well-being, wants to enhance it, wants to promote it. Um, but then if we look at the forms of love, we can say the particular ways God loves us also vary. And I try to emphasize those the three, what I think of at least, is the three classic Greek words, agape, eros, and phileia, and give them kind of contemporary definitions, even though I'm not saying all the Bible supports these particular definitions. Mm. Uh, but I think of agape as what I like to call in spite of love. <laughs> that in spite of in spite of what we've done wrong or offensive, in spite of something about us that's not really all that attractive, um, God loves us. But God also loves us because of. So eros, because of love, God finds value in us. So you know, God looks at us and says, "That's good." You know, created good. And um, so often people have thought of divine love as loving me in spite of my sin. But I think we can agree that God loves us in spite of our sin in the sense of acting for our well-being, but also finds us valuable, appreciates us, thinks we're worthwhile, and responds for our well-being in light of that value. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, the phileo one, friendship or cooperation, I think God loves us in the sense of calling us to co-labor, to work with God, to promote overall well-being in our lives and others and all creation and in God. Um, So I try to incorporate those big three Greek love words, agape, eros, and phileia, as saying God loves us in spite of our sin, because of our value, and alongside us. Mm-hmm. Uh, in working to promote well-being in the world, the um, the use of agape is kind of bandied about all the time, and and I think that the general Christian notion of agape is that this is like the God kind of love, the love that only yeah. God can have, and yeah. and I think that that was my understanding of it early on. Yeah, in in my you know trying to understand. God and coming back to Jesus and with a full heart, just trying to do everything the best way that I can and trying to understand it all. And of course, getting confused and getting it wrong constantly, but <laughs> that it's not just the agape that, that, that God has for us. Um, it is that unconditional love. That agape love is the unconditional love, the one that we find the hardest to extend to, to each other. Um, because we can't love unconditionally as human beings, we're 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 very um, uh, we're very affected in that way. And it's not to say that God isn't uh, affected either, but it is to say that God doesn't stop loving in the same way that we can. Uh, we, right. we have a capacity to switch things off when it feels like we're, you know, if we feel like we've been hurt or scorned. Uh, if if a step too far has been taken to offend us or to hurt us, that um, we can't extend that love anymore to somebody, but that just doesn't happen with God. Right. Yeah. I call that God being essentially loving. Mm. Uh, God must love because it's God's nature to do so. And that I don't think we have natures of essential love. So we're different in that way. Um, but, you know, I, I was also taught that agape was God's love, even though, well, I shouldn't say, I'll start that sentence differently. When I actually took New Testament Greek in college, I discovered that agape is also the word for creaturely love. So, 
You know, when we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors ourselves. That's the word agape appears there. Yeah. And that's our love, not God. Now, of course, what Anders Nygren does is just say, well, it's not really your love. You're just a passive tube and God <laughs> is working you kind of like a robot or maybe a better an- analogy was be a marionette. We're like puppets and God is actually doing the loving, not really us, which <laughs> takes away all our agency, which makes us, you know, which fits the predestination kind of route really well. But I don't think that scripture supports that view well at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so agape, according to the biblical writers, isn't just God's love. It's also our love. And um, then the question is, okay, well then can we love without God? And here I emphasize the Johannine idea that we love because God loves us. So I think God inspires, empowers, and makes our love possible. So we respond to God, but it's still us doing the responding. So we can rightly say we are loving, just empowered and inspired by God to do so. Yeah, I think there is um, there's a school of thought that kind of do, it does kind of rob us of our agency. Uh, Cal- Calvinism, I think, is the, the primary sector, right, of that yeah. of that idea. Um, but there's other schools of kind of Christian thought that seem to that seem to reflect a similar idea. And yeah. and it's it's not. I think, in my mind, I see that God um, makes us capable of of the love uh, yeah. that God wants to perfect us, but mm-hmm. um, for any number of reasons, we cannot be perfected in the same way that God is, but um, God gives us the capacity to love. Uh, mm-hmm. Not, we aren't, yeah, passive tubes was a very funny word, <laughs> but, the, but uh, God gives us the, um, gives us the, the heart, the soul that it requires uh, to love. Mm-hmm. But it isn't um it isn't just God acting through us necessarily. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. In some parts of the Christian tradition and and here I'm always careful identifying things with particular people because there's interpretations that are involved. But one way to interpret Martin Luther is to say that he thinks any love that we express is not us expressing love, that it's God who does it through us Mm. and we're these passive tubes. But he thinks when we sin, well, hey, that was us. That wasn't God. (laughs) Uh, You know, Calvin, at least one reading of Calvin, God does it all, sin and love. But Luther wants to put all the blame for sin on us and put all the good for God. And that always struck me as like, you know, really taking that total depravity view (laughs) to its logical end. Um, I would rather say God is always moment by moment inspiring, empowering, and calling us to love. And we can't love without God's activity first, but we can freely respond to that empowering and inspiring. We can respond well or poorly. Mm-hmm. When we respond well, then we're, we're loving. We're loving because God made it possible, but it's really us that's doing the loving. When we respond poorly, well, that's what we call sin. God's not making us sin. God's giving us the opportunity, but we are the ones who are truly sinning. So we should get partial credit for the love in the world. (laughs) God gets the lion's share because God inspires it. But when we cooperate, we should get partial credit. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to sin, God made it possible for us to act, but called us not to sin. And we we get the blame for sin. Hmm. Wow. Tom, I love this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming back on it. Yeah, I, um, I'm trying to think pleasure. if there's anything. Is there something? Is there anything else you wanted to um, to hmm. touch on before we before we wrap up? Think so. I don't think so. We covered all the things I was hoping we would cover, and more. <laughs> oh, uh, and I should mention, um, I will have uh, five copies of Tom's new book to be giving away to listeners of the podcast. I'll uh, publish details on that through social media platforms and things like that, uh, and and how folks can 
enter to win. I'm not really sure how this is all going to go out. This is the first kind of contest like this that I've ever done, but yeah, I love uh, it. it's very fun. As, um, uh, through everything that I've read in the book so far, I think it's fantastic. I think uh, anyone's faith would be edified by reading it and their understanding of of God and, and God's love uh, would be um, certainly more well-informed uh, if they, if they uh, took a stroll through the book. So uh, keep your eyes peeled, everybody, for that. Um, this is going to be a free episode, so I want to make sure that I mention uh, before this week's poem that uh, bonus content is available on patreon.com backslash transregretsnoopy. Uh, there'll be two free uh, episodes now per month and two bonus episodes per month. Those bonus episodes are only available when you subscribe to the Patreon. The Patreon also gives you access to our um patron discord group where we do a weekly bible study every wednesday and a monthly movie night and um soon i'm thinking s- other sorts of uh, community groups that we've been uh, we've been discussing and trying to put together so uh please do check that out uh of course thank you again tom for for coming on the show i always love uh, talking with you and um and yeah, I, I enjoy it I, too. I think we'll have, uh, hopefully have the chance to chat again sometime in the near future too. Great. Well, let me also say to your listeners, both those who are lucky enough to get a copy of the book and those who just decide to buy it on their own, um, <laughs> send me any questions, comments, criticisms, praise, whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm up for engaging uh, people on these big and what I think are important ideas. Mm. And you have uh, a couple of websites. Uh, you want to go yeah. ahead and plug those? Sure. My personal website is my full name, Thomas J. Ord. Uh, my middle name is J-A-Y, last name O-O-R-D, thomasjord.com. Um, also, I direct the Center for Open and Relational Theology. If that interests you, that website is the letter C, the number four, and then the letters O-R-T.com, C4Ort.com. Those are good ways to get a hold of me. Excellent. Uh, This week's poem is uh, by Mary Oliver. It's called Last Days. Things are changing. Things are starting to spin, snap, fly off into the blue. Sleeve of the long afternoon, oh and ooh, come whistling out of the perished mouth of the grass as things turn soft, boil back into substance and hue. As everything forgetting its own enchantment whispers, I too love oblivion. Why not? It is full of second chances. Now hiss the bright curls of the leaves. Now booms the muscle of the wind. Thanks, everybody. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Everybody searching for a hero People need someone to look up to I never found anyone to fulfill my needs A lonely place to be So I learned to depend on me I decide